The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Welcome to a spooktacular episode of Serious Fun, the show where pop culture and high culture are fused together into an unholy, misunderstood monster. I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, and we've got a bit of a different show this week. You see, it's the 200th anniversary of the publication of Mary Shelley's classic Frankenstein, the novel that pretty much created science fiction as we know it. And I've been working in the lab these past few weeks, putting together some special presentations for various events on campus aimed at investigating Frankenstein's impact on popular culture. So for this week's show, I've taken these two presentations, neither of which is really long enough to be a show on its own, but I've stitch them together into a walking podcast monstrosity for your listening pleasure. First up, a presentation on the recreation of Mary Shelley's myth in unexpected places, recorded live at the UW-Green Bay Coffrin Library's Frankentalks event on October 23rd, 2018. Audio is not quite perfect, but it should be more than sufficient. Either way, I hope you enjoy reanimating the monster here on Serious Fun. Good evening. Uh, as, uh, as mentioned, my name is Dr. Brian Carr. I am, of course, uh, Associate Professor in Communication and Information Science here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I am also the co-host of Serious Fun. It's a podcast on our Phoenix Studios network, and it's a show all about uh, sort of investigating the kind of crash collision between popular culture and high culture or the broader culture. Um, and in that light, it's, it's hard to kind of think of a work that has a bigger sort of footprint in the cultural landscape than Mary Shelley's uh, classic Frankenstein text. Of course, that's why I have an event like this to celebrate the uh, 200th anniversary of the story. Um, so when I was asked to be here, my first thought was, why? Um, <laughs> there's, there's surely many other better people. Um, but then I was, I was honored, so I thought, okay, what's my approach? Why do I want to do this? So I took a moment, I tried to assess what exactly I wanted to say about the legacy of Shelley's work and its place in pop culture. Uh, and, and to me, Frankenstein's a story of hubris, um, basically of our reach exceeding our grasp. And uh, this idea that mankind, and particularly men, uh, think they can assign life and death at will uh, in defiance of nature and the ultimate consequence of that arrogance, both for themselves and their creature, but also everyone around them. 
So that's kind of what I thought was interesting. This is a really rich vein in science fiction. I, I haven't done like the actual analysis, but I'm pretty sure that if you were looking for a story that comes up more often than not in science fiction, it, it's this. This story comes up again and again and again. Um, and in fact, variations in that storyline, I would say, are probably some of those popular ones. We really love this key idea, this key story. And so tonight I want to talk about how this sort of idea of a creator, monster, disaster arc plays out again and again and again, uh, has been interpreted in over uh, many different years. Uh, and to list all the possible riffs on Frankenstein would take more time than I have tonight. And it's, of course, to say nothing of the cultural prominence that one particular interpretation of the monster has in our life. Of course, that's the classic 1930s Universal Studios, Frankenstein. Um, and that's a, I'll talk about this issue later on Serious Fun, blatant plug. Um, this, uh, there's a huge kind of impact this character has on our sort of uh, collective consciousness, but instead I decided to focus on a few less traditional examples of how that arc has been reimagined and what those interpretations carry forward from the original work. So I'm going to start out uh, in my comfort zone of superhero comics. If you can't tell, I've got my Avengers shoes on. Um, there are, of course, no shortage of Frankenstein homages in superhero comics, whether it's the suspiciously familiar-looking early Incredible Hulk, um, or the actual Frankenstein's monster characters that litter the pages of comics from DC, Marvel, and others. But there's one character you might not consider when you think about this, um, and that's Deadpool. Um, Deadpool is one of the most popular characters uh, currently in the Marvel brand of comics, but also a really interesting example of a modern take on the Frankenstein story. Uh, the character's comic origins are all kind of sketchy and contradictory with certain aspects of his character phased out to feed the beast of sequential art and merchandising. So I'm going to focus primarily on the 2016 big screen Ryan Reynolds version. Now in this film, uh, he plays Wade Wilson, a mercenary who after being given a death sentence from this aggressively spreading cancer, does what anyone would do in our modern healthcare system. He takes the first offer of free treatment given to him by a shady guy in a suit in a bar. <laughs> Now, what was purported to be a cure for uh, actually turns out to be an experiment aimed at awakening and replicating genetic mutations, not unlike that of the X-Men, in which he shares a universe. Wherein Wilson is subjected, subjected to ongoing torture and nearly killed again and again and again. He develops a healing ability that kicks in and cures his cancer, but in so doing leaves him horrifically disfigured. So he goes on the warpath to hunt down the researchers that did this to him in the hopes of finding a cure. This is kind of starting to sound a little bit familiar. Um, <laughs> So here we have a creator of the Mysterious Mutant Research Program and Ajax, the researcher that did this to him, tampering with the laws of nature to recreate life, or in this case, create a different kind of advanced life based on a mutated gene, um, and ultimately creates a monster, albeit a, gen a generally funny and good-hearted one in the case of this character. But the film actually makes these uh, parallels a lot more explicit in terms of how it frames the transformation. It straps Wilson to a bed where he is bound and injected with various serums as these tubes snake in and out of his body, putting him through this ongoing cycle of suffocation and reoxygenation, uh, re uh, with each awakening from near death, this sort of wretched, gasping um, effort as life returns to his body. And as the process goes on, his appearance even starts to resemble some variations of the creature. Later, uh, in a later scene, he ends up fighting his creator, naked and surrounded by flame, as he attempted to escape from the lab and uh, tried to kill Ajax, the scientist that did this. So we have this Frankenstein arc, uh, arc of death, rebirth, death, 
death, rebirth, enacted in this very brief but brutal fight scene. The lab, the lab ultimately burns down, but Wilson survives, clawing his way out of the ashes, not unlike the phoenix uh, that we are here uh, to, uh, to celebrate tonight, um, but also completing this uh, like ultimate rebirth metaphor. So the subtext that this is this un inhumane, unconscionable experiment carried out in the interest of twisting nature to meet some nefarious end is clear, and when Deadpool later uses his powers to kill Ajax, Spoiler, he fulfills the ultimate payoff to the arc as the creator's hubris proves to be his downfall. Ultimately, just as much as Deadpool borrows from other superheroes, dude looks a lot like Spider-Man, not in that photo, but in other ones. Um, uh, at least in this interpretation, he borrows just as much from Shelley's work. Our next hero is a slightly more tragic one, and honestly, maybe a better example even yet of the Frankenstein story, as well as a manifestation of the perils and pitfalls of the manufacturing age. You might be wondering, who could I possibly be talking about? RoboCop. RoboCop, the deliriously violent 1987 action satire from director Paul Verhoeven, speculates a world in which total control of the police force and dystopian future Detroit, and I will thank you to keep your future Detroit jokes to yourself, thank you, um, is handed over to the OCP Corporation, which intends to replace the entire police force with high-tech robot drones. When one of those drones malfunctions and murders a, one of the executives for the company in an incredibly gra graphic scene, um, an ambitious young executive says, hey, what if we actually use the human touch? What if we combine humans with these robots and create cyborg police officers? So they start sending out the cops to these incredibly dangerous locations in the hopes that one of them will die, and then they can actually reanimate them. Um, the poor sucker is Officer James Murphy, who's shot to death in one of the most famous death scenes of the era. If you haven't seen it and you've got a strong stomach, it's worth a YouTube. Um, it's truly horrific, and there's not much of him left at the end of this. Um, and so his brain is placed in a mechanical body, and he starts to kind of wake up, and he sees his uh, creator sort of like dancing around, having like there's like an office Christmas party happening around him as he's like barely conscious. Um, and so he starts, eventually he patrols the streets as RoboCop, unaware of the larger corporate conspiracy surrounding him. Now what's interesting about RoboCop is it's often held up as this example of the excess of the 1980s action movie, and it's absolutely that. Okay, but like everything Paul Verhoeven does is excess. That's that's his thing. Um, but its violence and gratuitousness belie this tale of morality and identity that borrows very heavily from Shelley's work. And full disclosure, that violence and gratuitousness is amazing. Um, Murphy is murdered. His brain is given new life in a body that is not his own. And ultimately, in fact, the body is itself the intellectual property of a project developed by an ambitious and power-seeking young executive for an, for an unaccountable corporate entity looking to use their stranglehold on the city of Detroit to further their bottom line. There's a lot of parallels here, as you can kind of see, into not just for, uh, Shelley, but you know, other things in, real in the real world. Um, and this, of course, is very much made in the 1980s, so it's a product of kind of the manufacturing age, the downfall of the Rust Belt, manufacturing, the Reagan era, uh, that sort of thing. But unlike Deadpool, who ultimately found, finds heroic validation in killing his creator, RoboCop only gets the surface-level appearance of such satisfaction. He's ultimately used as a pawn in an internal boardroom power struggle and subject to a lack of autonomy due to the way he is programmed. Basically, he can't hurt any of the executives that created him. That's the failsafe they put in there. And so ultimately, when it's revealed that one of the other executives tried to murder the guy that signed off on the RoboCop program, that executive and, and tries to hold the CEO of the company hostage, the CEO fires him, allowing Robot, or RoboCop to essentially shoot him out of a window. Um, it's a great movie, guys. <laughs> So when RoboCop saves the OCP CEO, which I saying that three times fast, at the end of the film, the CEO asks him his name, to which he replies for the first time in the film, now aware of who he is, Murphy. 
a moment played at the surface level for triumph, but ultimately deeply tragic when one considers how little agency Murphy has in the situation and the fact that he's ultimately only recognized as human by the CEO after Murphy's actions saved the man's life. Yet, much like Shelley's work explored the repercussions of unchecked scientific power and toxic masculinity, so does Robocop explore the limitations of the body in a world of unchecked scientific and corporate power. Frankenstein's monster is unwillingly given life and tries to reconstruct, uh, sorry, uh, is unwillingly given life and seeks his own identity in this world where he's seen as a monster. Robocop is unwillingly given life and tries to reconstruct his own identity from fragments of memories in which, in, in a world where he is seen as an institutional weapon, an instrument of control and uh, essentially fascist, uh, fascist uh, power. Both are cautionary tales of their time, with Robocop having a lot to say about America and the Rust Belt and the Reagan era, and the consequences of corporate-driven revitalization and rebirth potentially coming at the cost of the world. Also, there's a really cool part where a guy gets like melted by toxic goo and just gets hit by a car and explodes. It's fantastic. <laughs> but if that wasn't sufficiently nihilist enough for you, I introduce you to the third and final Frankenstein allegory for tonight, Michael Fassbender's David from the films Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Um, David is an android from the far-flung future of the alien universe, and perhaps the ultimate, and by the way, the alien films are aggressively feminist films, all of them. And in David's case, he's perhaps the ultimate expression of the Frankenstein myth. He's this creature created out of human hubris to try to make something that looks like us, that is indistinguishable from us, to demonstrate that we can create life just the way God or our mothers or whoever we believe created life did. So. Over the course of these films, David decides he's not super happy with that arrangement. Um, and so he becomes obsessed with creating this new life form of his very own to kind of say, I can do this too. Over the course of the two films, we learn that it's David who has been experimenting with and bringing to life the iconic xenomorphs. First, experimenting them with them by like poisoning people's drinks with the spores in 2012's very beautiful, but nothing really happens to the last few minutes, Prometheus and later designing and nurturing them to the creatures that would pester Sigourney Weaver for two decades in 2017's much better but significantly less artsy Alien Covenant. David, as posited in an article by Book Riot writer Josh Corman, is, quote, simultaneously enamored by humanity's artistic heights. He likes to play the flute, and he's obsessed with classical music, but also embittered by their moral failings. David wants to force humanity to recognize its flaws. Um, then he wants to use those flaws as justification for his ultimate revenge upon them, unquote. David is himself an idealized form of humanity, handsome and recognizable as human in a way somewhat like how Shelley describes Frankenstein's uh, creature. But he's unsatisfied with this, and he's, un he's unsatisfied with the frailty of humanity in general. For David, life and the human attempt to make sense of it is ultimately meaningless. There's a scene in Prometheus where his creator is essentially dying and asks him what's out there after, he, after death. He basically says nothing. So he really kind of sees life as just ultimately pointless for humanity. Um, and so rather than try to recreate life in his image, or you know, by association, that of his creators, David tries to outdo Frankenstein by creating what he thinks is a superior, better, different form of life. Writing on the subject of uh, parallels between Shelley's work and the Alien films for the website Audiences Everywhere, Zach Fanny suggests the following, quote, As a darkened version of the romantic poet, David does not seek the sublime as an end. He seeks instead to harness it as an answer to the nothingness rotting at the heart of human existence. And in creating the xenomorph, David's response seems clear. If nothingness awaits us at the end of all this spiritual, existential yearning, what use is the ability to ponder it? Our thoughts, our anxieties, and our very cultures are centered around an aimless, purposeless striving that clouds our natures as organisms, unquote. And you thought it was just about monsters eating people. Shame on you. 
The parallels between stories are made much more obvious in some of the promotional material for Alien Covenant. When Fassbender, playing another android, there's a lot of androids in these movies, and he plays two of them. So this other android, um, uh, in the um, promotional material, directly quotes Frankenstein, saying, Learn from me, if not by my precepts, then at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge. Now, as of yet, Covenant ends on a cliffhanger. David has yet to pay the ultimate price that Frankenstein did for his unnatural knowledge and meddling in the affairs of nature. But the humans surrounding him certainly have. Ultimately, these are the lessons that Mary Shelley's work teaches us, whether it's through a snarky superhero, a cyborg cop in a a futurist Detroit, or an amoral android that creates nature's most perfect killing machine for fun. Frankenstein holds up a mirror to our dark side of our human progress and endeavor 200 years later. And as long as that reach still continues to exceed our grasp, as our ambition exceeds our ethics, it's probably going to 200 years from now, too. Our second and final part of this show comes from our special Phoenix Studios live event at the Widener Performing Arts Center on the campus of UW-Green Bay. And it builds on what's alluded to in the first section by talking about the real monster of the Frankenstein story, copyright law and an easily exploited public domain. Recorded live to tape with the special guest plush Frankenstein doll you see on this episode's album art on October 17th, 2018, it's It Came From The Public Domain on Serious Fun. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Brian Carr. I am the host of Serious Fun on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network. Thank, thank you for the fist pumping in the background. I'm much, again, much appreciated. Not uh, completely overselling it, but still, yeah, thank you. Uh, Serious Fun is a show where pop culture runs headlong into the brick wall of the broader culture as we explore the real-life ramifications and dimensions of our entertainment, speak with creators, and make lots of really questionable jokes. So I'm going to apologize to you in advance um, for what is about to happen. Speaking of one such questionable joke, um, Phoenix Studio shows, including this one, are available via the Stitcher network, um, which seems appropriate given tonight's material. So thank you, Stitcher, for both hosting the shows and for the layup. We are here tonight at the Widener Center, which I keep expecting to be thrown out of, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, to talk about the birth of an explosive, timely genre of literature written by a young woman very much ahead of her time, to discuss the origins of horror, what scares us, and why, uh, and, and, why and, as, and as we recognize the impact of this legendary literary figure. It's all very exciting, and I can think of no more scintillating thrilling way to celebrate this than a discussion of U.S. copyright law and the collective memory. So forward on to adventure. <laughs> now, as, as some of you are probably aware, copyright law in the United States exists primarily to protect the intellectual property of individuals, basically uh, the product of your creative and intellectual toil, so that you can profit from it, and up to a certain point, uh, you know, after you die, your family can then profit from it, and you can sort of pass it down, uh, and they can benefit from the material. So let's say hypothetically, just to pull a completely random example, you create this innovative, forward-thinking work of literary genius that more or less creates an entire genre of fiction. Under current copyright law, you would hold the exclusive rights to the work, provided you file for them, some people haven't, which, you know, leads to a lot of potentially troublesome scenarios, until your death. After your death, generally speaking, your you, or who more accurately, whoever you left the rights to, gets to hold the claim to that work for up to 70 years. 
So your amazing hypothetical science fiction groundbreaking innovation gets to be one heck of an inheritance that your kids, your grandkids, and whatever no-account people that, they, that glom onto them can coast on. During that time, you or your heirs have the ability to reproduce the work, meaning you can make additional copies of it, create derivative works, like reimagined versions of the story or the almighty sequel, distribute copies of the work to others, usually this means that you sell the copies of your work, perform the work publicly, or display the work publicly. So copyright is essentially ensuring that you, and only you, or those you select to get it after you die, get to benefit from your hard work. Now, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this, but I wonder if there were like a Frankenstein-type uh, scenario where you died but then were resurrected. Does the copyright start over? This is something that, this is the stuff I think about. Um, so if you ever see me like in my office, like staring off at the wall, that's what I'm thinking about. It's usually something like that. There's more complexity to it than this, and there are different rules for different situations. But for our purposes tonight, that's, that's fine. There's also the question of how long certain characters can actually exist before they become public domain, and companies like Disney have a vested interest in extending copyright past that 70-year mark for one simple reason. <clears throat> M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-N-E-Y. Now, so what happens next? So after your work expires from copyright, it goes in this thing called the public domain. It's this big sort of metaphorical clearinghouse for all works that have lapsed in copyright protection. Once something goes in the public domain, technically anyone can have those above rights without having to pay the original creator, who's long dead at this point and doesn't really care, or their heirs or their publisher or what have you. So someone could write a sequel to your novel or make a movie out of it or turn it into a rap song for their dozens of followers on SoundCloud. I have a link if you would like to see it later. With Shelley's original work being published in 1818, it has of course been in the public domain. Did I get it right, 1818 is correct? Awesome. It, is it has been of course in the public domain for well over a century. Because it's in the public domain, anyone can technically make their own version or adaptation of Frankenstein, a fact I fully intend to take advantage of right now. So you were just handed out a pencil and paper. You all got it, show me, like wave it around in the air like you don't care, thank you. Um, I want you all to do me a favor. I want you to draw Frankenstein's monster for me. Don't get fancy with it, okay? Just a quick sketch. Don't like no cross-hatching or anything like that. I got like 20 minutes, guys. Come on. Like let's, you know, think think of me here. Um, I'll give you 30 seconds. Go. People are drawing. It's very lovely. Um, I see some folks getting really into it. Um, some folks look confused, like saying I was not prepared to come here and draw tonight, but that's fine. Um, it looked like I, I, a bird. I mean, you can draw whatever you want. Like, you can interpret. We're, we're talking about different interpretations of Frankenstein, but that's that's up there, man. Um, yeah, we got, okay, if you, you've got yours, you got yours done. Okay, Rebecca's got hers done. Anybody else got theirs done? Okay, we got. Okay, oh wow, that one's really fancy over there, saying he's got a good one. Okay, awesome. All right, so I'm going to show you mine. Did it look something like that? Flat top, bolts coming out of the neck, stitches, that kind of stuff. Um, these are our shorthands for Frankenstein's monster. So I also want to introduce you to a friend of mine um, that is, is joining me tonight. I don't have a co-host, but I do have this fella. Um, this, this is Bill, okay? Um, I want to point out that you know, when, I, when I showed you this illustration, okay, all our Frankensteins look the same. And I see some of you wincing, okay? Look, I know. In the words of one Joseph Scrimshaw on Twitter, at Joseph Scrimshaw. Frankenstein is the scientist, the person correcting you on this trivial point 
is the monster. So Frankenstein's the doctor. The monster that Shelley created is called Adam, the modern Prometheus, what have you. This guy's Bill. Bill's an orthopedic surgeon. He's devoted to his job, but he's looking for that special someone. Hi, Bill. Shelley's monster, of course, looked nothing like Bill or anything we drew here tonight. In her words, which I do have here, because again, the work's in public domain. I can copy and paste it all I want. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe or how delineate the wretch with whom, with such infinite pains and care, I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing. His teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Yeah, so you, you see a disparity between what she's writing and that, okay? Um, why, why is there dis this disparity? Well, there's one guy who's patient zero for this. Um, this is Frankenstein's monster as played by the legendary Boris Karloff in the 1931 film Frankenstein and his later follow-up Bride of Frankenstein. The iconic prosthetic and makeup work on Karloff was the product of makeup artist Jack Pierce who decided that his version of the monster should reflect Frankenstein's status as a scientist. And if you're a scientist, of course, you're going to like hack that brain open. Uh, you got to be able to like sew it back up. There's going to be wires exposed, all that kind of stuff. So you got the bolts to conduct electricity. The makeup is kind of this bluish, grayish green to make him look cadaverous on film. He's got this like makeup and all that. Um, this has since become the de facto appearance of the characters. The monsters and characters inspired by him all have that same basic appearance, as did the drawings that you guys made uh, just here a moment ago. An angular, flat-topped head, bolts on the neck, some kind of tattered suit, though Bill's got it together, he's keeping it tight. Um, and heavy boots with skin that usually ends up being green or gray. And so we see this version of the character, or something like it, showing up again and again and again. This is where I want to talk about the phenomenon of collective memory for a second. You're like, oh, God, I didn't come here to get a lecture on a Thursday, on a Wednesday night, but here we are anyway. Um, collective memory is a theory advanced by the French philosopher and sociologist Maurice Halbwax. Uh, and Maurice suggests that there are a group, when groups of people get together, they sort of form this collective pool of knowledge and memories um, to which they can refer back to, as well as pass on to future groups. The advent of mass media really kind of exacerbates this and changes how we create collective memory by prioritizing certain representations of stories, characters, or ideas over others. Before, because we saw certain things in film, heard certain songs, all these sort of things, these things are widely available, we can refer back to them and we create these sort of common touchstones that we refer back to. So if I, for example, uh, say, da-da, 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 you know what I'm referring to, right? I see one person very much excited. Hi, Ryan, how you doing? Um, or if I say, go ahead, make my day, I'm referring, of course, to the fact that I want you to plan me a surprise party because, you know, that's what friends do, Bill. So ultimately what happened is that Karloff's depiction, because it was so heavily influential at the time and appeared in so many other films, including Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, The Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and perhaps the scariest, most terrifying of all, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, that were for many other creators, these were their first exposure to the character. Maybe they didn't read the novel, they saw these films, and this became a focal reference point for their own works. So they want to tell a story about Frankenstein's monster, they follow that same pattern. And so in comic books, we see Frankenstein appearing again and again and again. Here I have, for example, the DC Comics version of the character, who's known simply as Frankenstein, because DC Comics wants none of your pedantic corrections. Uh, countless films, endless streams of toys. That's them, not me. I'm not, don't get mad at me. Um, 
Halloween decorations, and more. We even have a Mickey Mouse version of Frankenstein's monster up here on the screen, which seems weirdly appropriate for this discussion for reasons that should be pretty apparent now. And eventually, because we see it so much, that depiction becomes divorced from its original context. So we know that Frankenstein's monster looks like this, not always because we know Frank or Karloff's version, but because that is how Frankenstein's monster has always looked in everything else we've ever seen, every cartoon, every comic, every Halloween decoration, or anything else. But ironically, not on the cereals we buy. Frankenberry, as always, is the exception that proves the rule. So what's the big deal? Effectively, what we have here is a situation where our concept of Frankenstein's monster is Frankenstein out of a lot of different media depictions. You can use it as a verb, I think. Um, I don't I, I'm not an English major, but I'll defer to the English majors on that. They can uh, correct me or beat me up later. Um, when the original concept for Frankenstein went into the public domain, uh, Universal made a movie out of Shelley's novel because they didn't have to pay her or her estate for the rights. And because they made a unique performance of the film under copyright law, they can turn around and copyright their version of the film, meaning they can profit off somebody else's work. They don't own the idea of Frankenstein, but by gum they own their interpretation of Frankenstein and so they get to enforce it and protect it and boy howdy has Universal ever done that most notably going after rival horror studio Hammer Films in the 1950s to make sure that that studio's curse of Frankenstein was distinct from the Universal representation of the character as well as cracking down on several comics interpretations of the character that have gotten a little too close to the depiction of their Frankenstein monster now it's worth noting that the 1974 Mel Brooks film Young Frankenstein seems to have gone out of its way to make a monster that is evocative of the character without getting close enough to be sued. In my perspective, it's probably because fair use protections for parody, which Young Frankenstein would have absolutely fallen under, weren't actually codified into copyright law until two years after that film came out. But also, any world where Universal deprived us of Peter Boyle doing the putting on the Ritz bit is one I want no part of. An article published by copyright and plagiarism expert Jonathan Bailey suggests that Universal has also filed cease and desist notices against any books or other material that has a monster with all of the following elements, green skin, a flat top head, scars on the forehead, bolts on the neck, and also a forehead that protrudes. Those are what they define their monster as having. So if that's true, my pal Bill here, well, he has three of those elements, note the scars, note the flat top, note the green skin. He's a separate thing from Universal's monster because he doesn't have neck bolts and his forehead doesn't stick out. And also, he's got a thriving small orthopedic surgery practice. You do good work, Bill. You should be proud of yourself. Fun story about Universal and their copyright uh, uh, goings on. Universal once claimed they owned the rights to King Kong, uh, putting out a 1975, uh, and I think it's around the same time uh, Young Frankenstein came out, they put out a version of King Kong in the theaters. And so they claimed they owned the rights to King Kong. And so when Nintendo, the video game company, made Donkey Kong, they claimed that Nintendo was ripping off their rights. And they said that people would get confused, and they're trying to essentially bully Nintendo into signing over the rights to, to Donkey Kong. Uh, until Nintendo's lawyer pointed out, hey, you guys remember when you made that King Kong movie and then the people who made King Kong came after you in court and you said that King Kong was in the public domain so anybody could work with it? Yeah. So, oops. Nintendo won that, by the way. Um, and they also gave the lawyer who argued that a sailboat called Donkey Kong as well as the exclusive rights to use that name on sailboats around the world. 
So what does this mean? Well, because of the way our media system works, ideas and concepts become genericized, okay? We see this in brand names, for example. Kleenex is a brand name, but we use it to refer to any facial tissue. Xerox is a brand name, we use it to refer to any copier, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we can repeat and parody and alter these ideas so much that they simply become part of our cultural shorthand. When I asked you to draw Frankenstein, you knew right away what that monster looked like. I didn't have to explain it to you. You could come in not even knowing anything about the original novel, and you could draw that same picture, right? We sort of take it into this sort of cultural osmosis. And so this means that the owners of that copyrighted version that have become so popular effectively own that concept regardless of whether they created it or not. If I say, for example, Cinderella or Snow White or Sleeping Beauty, the first thing that's going to pop into your head is not likely the original fairy tales or something like that, but rather probably the Disney version of those characters, right? Because that's the one you're used to. It's the, you know, the ubiquitous kind of representations of these characters with their readily summoned animal friends. These become our de facto version of those characters. And Disney, contrary to popular belief, had nothing to do with the creation of that concept. They simply sort of reinterpreted it, copyrighted their version, and got to profit off of it for years to come, if, if they get their way, probably long after the heat death of the universe. Now, this is not to say that in Frankenstein's case, there's not been attempts to reinterpret or reimagine the monster. Uh, Kenneth Branagh's 1994 film uh, was on the better end of that. Whatever Aaron Eckhart was trying to do in the film I, Frankenstein, is on the other end. Um, but none of these resonate or permeate into the broader culture the way that Universal's monster did. As these large companies like Universal and Warner Brothers and Disney and all these other companies buy more and more of our media and lobby to continue extending the length of copyright protection, they, their claim to these forms of cultural shorthand is strengthened, directly or not. And while it can certainly be argued that Universal's copyright is watered down as a result of, the prom of its place in our collective memory, that their monster has indeed become genericized, it's also arguable that the single depiction's erasure of any other version of the character has more or less, uh, is, has more or less ceded control of our collective memory of the concept of Frankenstein to Universal Studios, who can profit off that version of the character more or less in perpetuity and swing a pretty big legal hammer at anyone who comes near it. And yet, in a strange way, this feels like an appropriate legacy for Shelley's work, an artificial creation testing the boundaries of how long an idea should live, a collective memory cobbled together from component parts into a whole that we all agree on and we all share. Perhaps at some point, the monster doesn't belong to anyone. Perhaps by sheer ubiquity, it's really our collective property, regardless of who owns it or not. But perhaps we also need to find and champion reinterpretations of the monster, to find alternative ways of telling the story, to breathe new life into a classic. I know, I wanted something stronger to go out on too, but this was Bill's idea, and what are you gonna do? He's a foot doctor, not a writer. And that's our tribute to Frankenstein here on Serious Fun. There's a lot of people I want to thank for making these events happen. I want to thank Kate Farley and Sing Tao for their work on the Phoenix Studios live event. All the Widener staff that made that possible too. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast on the Phoenix Studios network at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast to hear some of the other great shows from that night. I especially recommend checking out Bird in the Wings. Um, they talk to a local horror uh, kind of haunted house uh, creator and it's fantastic. And I also want to thank Paula Ganyard, uh, Jody Pierre, and everyone else at the Coffin Library for putting together such a wonderful Franken Talks event, as well as a special shout out to longtime serious fun pal and technical advisor, Mike Schmidt, for setting it up and helping me work out the recording aspect. Have a safe, happy, and healthy Halloween, and we'll see you next time on Serious Fun. You just listen
listen to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgv.edu forward slash podcasts.